age-old question of to clap or not to clap. No, to clap. Yes, very good. Uh, praise God. Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. And if you'd open up your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians, we're going to continue in our study there. Uh, we'll read and then we will pray and work through our text. Let's read. The scripture says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask your blessing on this time in your word. All of our efforts are in vain if you are not in it. All of our words amount for nothing if your spirit does not empower them. All of our good works our rags, unless done for your glory and your honor, consistent with the great commands to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself. Father, as we come to you facing some difficult words, we pray that you would encourage us. Father, help us to see meaning and direction in suffering even if we do not find clear and satisfying answers. Father, help us to embrace our mission as a church as we hear these words as well. And to be clear about the need to share Jesus with those who do not know him, and then to pray 
not just for people who are in trouble, not just for people who are sick, but to pray for protection from the devil and to pray for growth and to pr pr pray that, that the flesh, that the, that the wandering, tempted spirit within us would be changed into your likeness. And Father, may we pray that in all things in our church family and in all of the churches in this city and throughout the world, that you would be glorified in them in the way that you have called the church to glorify you. We pray your grace on this word now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Not one for chit-chat, Paul greets the Thessalonians in 14 words and then reveals the foundation of his thankfulness for them. He's thankful, the scripture says, for the grace of God in their lives, and that's why he gives thanks to God in verse 3, because it's the grace of God, and he doesn't give thanks to them. He thanks God for them. He's moved to thank God, he says in verse 3, because this is right. He's thankful that their faith is growing. He's thankful that their love for one another is increasing, and he's thankful that they were steadfast and filled with faith in the midst of their difficulties and temptations. He was so moved and filled with joy at what God had done among them that his response was to boast about their faith in all of the churches. They, as he went around, from church to church, speaking about the, the way that the gospel had advanced, he spoke about them, the model church, the, the trend setter. They were the baseline of health, the standard other churches would be compared to. And yet, this letter is sent to a church that is in trouble. They're experiencing persecution from the outside, from the Jewish synagogue and the culture that had heard the gospel about Jesus, the good news that Jesus had come and taken sin upon himself and was the, the saving Messiah that the Jewish people had waited for, and they rejected that message and they persecuted the church. They also faced persecution from the citizens of the city, the Greek people who also rejected the message. They were dealing with doctrinal error within about when the Lord would return. Maybe he had already returned and they'd missed it. What to do now? And so there was a great deal of confusion in the church. Lastly, they were dealing with interpersonal troubles that, that rose from this false teaching about the return of the Lord. Some of them had even quit their jobs expecting Jesus to return, and in their laziness and idleness, they were causing trouble in the church. These problems brought this young church to an emotional precipice. It was draining to be in their midst. They were asking questions. What did they believe and why? Why were they suffering? Why wasn't God protecting them? What did the future hold? So Paul moves from encouraging them, that's what we see in the first verses, to rebuilding the foundation of their confidence. They had held fast to love and faith and had endured, but unless their understanding was strengthened, perhaps they would collapse under the pain and the confusion of their experience. 
And so Paul, as a master builder of churches, commissioned by Jesus to build the church, builds a foundation for them in the most important and relevant place for those who suffer. He points to the character of God and the purpose of suffering. What does he tell us? Paul tells us first that suffering is consistent with the goodness of God, even if we don't feel that. This, I believe, is one of the greatest struggles of the believer. Why am I suffering? Look at what Paul says, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. There's no inconsistency there for Paul. A number of years ago, I, I can't remember the exact circumstances, someone asked me, what's the greatest realization that you've had as a pastor consistently preaching through texts of the Bible, not just jumping from text to text, picking what you want to preach, but actually digging into texts and preaching them. What's the greatest realization that you've had? And my answer was simple. I said, I never knew how much time the Bible spent talking about human suffering. It's everywhere in the Bible. And this is, is my belief after years of preaching from the scriptures. The Bible spends very little time arguing for the existence of God, but is continuously, constantly arguing, promoting, defending, and teaching the goodness of God. That is the great struggle for the believer. To match up our experience and what we believe, what we desire from God. And that's a, a, a life experience free of pain and difficulty. So when we ask the scripture, how do we make sense of suffering? The answer, I believe, is interesting. We're not given a set of formulas or tips to, for, to survive a season of suffering. Instead, we see the experience of others. Consider David in Psalm 143. He says this, The enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. What's David's experience in suffering? Misery, pain, anxiety. Perhaps there have been seasons of your life where you can identify with him. But look at what David does. He turns to the Lord in trust and hope. Psalm 143, verse 8, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. This is no uh, afternoon talk show blog post set of advice. It's just a simple bedrock principle. This is my experience, and in faith I turn to the Lord and I wait. We know our past, and we know our present, and suffering can erode our confidence in a good outcome unless we root ourselves in trust in the goodness of God. Those who've gone before have cried for deliverance from trouble 
from a posture of trust in God. They don't know the future and they don't know the resolution of their circumstances, but they know that God can and will deliver them. And so in the meantime, they trust in his goodness. On trial, suffering, years in the future from when he wrote this letter, Paul would say this in Acts 22, sorry, Acts 26, verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying. Rather than give up in the face of suffering, Paul trusted in God's goodness. Second, suffering reveals the citizenship of the sufferer. Take care to hear clearly on this point, okay? Because this is one of those places in which the devil can switch the track as we listen to the truth and send us down a path of despair and self-effort. Look at verse 5 again. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Considered worthy. Suffering reveals the citizenship of the sufferer, but is not the basis or qualification of their citizenship. Iron pyrite, also known as fool's gold, is revealed for what it is when it goes into the fire. Someone might think, I am rich, this is gold. They put it into the fire and someone looks at them and says, nah, not gold. Gold, however, also known as gold, may have similar impurities. Thank you. Thank you. You are my people and you are with me. You few, yes. Gold may have similar impurities in it, but when it enters the fire, these impurities burn off, leaving behind the true precious metal. Suffering in the life of the believer allows for the recognition of their true character. Their citizenship, not here on earth, but in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians, is recognized and revealed. Suffering does not make the sufferer worthy of the kingdom. It said, instead, it strengthens humble dependence on God. It reveals areas yet to be surrendered to his sovereignty, and it shapes our impulse to turn to him in time of need. These qualities are the ones we find in a believer. The believer is not made worthy by their response to suffering, but made worthy by the righteousness of Christ, which is received by faith. Instead, suffering that drives a believer to dependence reveals them for who they are. That is, someone who knows that all they have, they have from God. That's a kingdom citizen. Suffering shapes us for the kingdom of God. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Suffering doesn't make us worthy. It shapes us. We are made worthy by the sacrifice of Christ. Paul and Barnabas taught their disciples in Acts 14, 21. It says that they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And so this is before they reached this city of, of 
Thessalonica and wrote First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is a process that drives us to the end of our own resources and to a place of dependence on God. We respond to our circumstances and suffering by posturing ourselves to look to God for our approval and our value and not to ourselves or to those around us. Suffering interrupts our self-confidence and our taking value from those around us and taking refuge and resting in the world. When we look to God only for our value and our approval and in our power, then we're in a place where our own resources are seen for what they are. Gifts from God on loan from him. And his resources are clearly revealed. Infinite, sufficient, and needed. We turn to him and we say, I trust in you. I rest in your wisdom. Strengthen me to bring me through and bring glory to yourself in this situation. And when we live that way, we're living in that moment the exact way that we were designed to live, as beings who are dependent on our Creator. Suffering doesn't make us worthy. Christ's righteousness makes us worthy. Suffering shapes us. That when others see our experience and look, they say, that's a kingdom citizen. Suffering will end, the scripture says, and there will be a reckoning. Verse 6, Paul continues his discussion here. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus comes, all will be made right. The Bible speaks of a day that will come when the Lord Jesus will correct all that is wrong, when he'll fix everything that's broken. Think about it. When we consider all things and all of our solutions when we look at all the problems in the world and we think of all the ways that we've innovated and adapted to isolating ourselves from pain and helping others, we realize that our world is fundamentally broken. And we need a benevolent dictator to come and make things right. We need a king. We don't need a fallen president. We don't need some perfectly shaped political personality to come and to fix everything. None of them have been sufficient. None of the candidates up for election in 2016 fit the description of perfect ruler very well. And none of them will in 2020. The Christian works to erase spiritual ignorance, to educate the next generation, to teach humility, to feed the hungry, to bring medicine to the sick, but we acknowledge that we are limited and we can only do so much. 
We need a righteous king to come and make all things right and to ensure that the law is followed properly and that all things are distributed well. When Jesus comes, the scripture says there will be a reckoning. He will balance the scales. He'll bring comfort and punishment. He will pay each one according to what they have earned, and only he knows the sum of a life. So we see that he'll bring comfort. The great passage in the scripture, Revelation 21, verse 4, says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He will bring comfort to the citizens of his kingdom, but he will also bring punishment. The Lord will also come to bring judgment. As Christians, we're called to evaluate the works of others, not judge, but to evaluate them and to lovingly guide them towards the truth. And we do that imperfectly. The state exists to make righteous laws, to reward those who are good, and to punish those who are evil. See Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And it performs, I believe we all agree with this, it performs that function imperfectly. One need look no further than my home state of New Jersey at this moment to see how imperfectly government functions. The state is apparently completely shut down. Some places are better than others. Some countries are good, some are bad. I would still rather live here than any other nation on the earth. I thank the Lord that I was born here. I'm honored to live here and thankful for my freedom, but at the same time, I admit that this is not my home. Jesus, when he returns, will perform the task of judgment with precision and righteousness. In a parable, the workers in a field tell the owner of that field, the owner is the Lord, that it is filled with both weeds and wheat. And so they ask, should we rip up the weeds? The owner tells them, no, you will disturb and uproot the wheat. So leave them until the harvest and then all things will be sorted out. It is the owner of the field who sorts the grain. Those who do not honor God with their hearts and their lives are in rebellion, enemies of God. When he comes, he will sort the people with precision and righteousness. Notice those who receive judgment in this passage. One, those who do not know God. They are guilty of neglect of the knowledge of God. They had the opportunity to know him but refused. Who are these people? The Bible says this is everyone in the entire world. Romans 1.20. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That means when you look at cheetahs running on nature documentaries and you look at leaves fall seasons change floods occur you see these things you know that there is a god and that he is powerful and it says so they're without excuse a more specific example an expansion on the first one are those who do not obey the gospel 
These are those who reject the ultimate revelation of God's saving activity. In Romans 3.19, we're told that God gives us his commands so that every mouth may be stopped. That means that all the humans who would give an excuse and say, but you didn't tell me they have to place their hand over their mouth. They have no excuse. The whole world is held accountable to God. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, the Bible says. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Every single human being knows it in their heart, though they may bury it under layers of excuse and willed ignorance and self-defense mechanisms. Every human is called to repent, to put their faith and trust in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, and then to walk in newness of life. This is the good and the bad news of Jesus' coming. For those who have repented and depend on him and long for him, comfort. For those who have rejected him, judgment. Suffering ends when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Suffering ends for the believer. But suffering continues for those who've rejected him. So consider the impact of this passage. Four facts, two responses. They may not be what you think. First is this, the Lord Jesus will come in glory. Verses 7 and 8, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, this will be a day of great celebration. All that we've waited for, all that we've desired will come. Grandkids wait. They stare at the window. They press their fingers and faces to the glass, leaving behind traces of their existence, right? Asking, what time will they get here? Are they here yet? When will they arrive? Because what happens when grandparents come? Joy and happiness and love and gifts and ice cream and things, right? When Jesus comes, he will bring all the qualities that we believe about life and and hope for in this life that time and time again fail to appear. He'll bring life without death, truth without lie and disappointment, joy without limit, pleasure without perversion, community without division. The things that we've searched for in this life and have come up empty for, Those things we've longed for come in his presence. The Lord Jesus will come in glory. Second, the Lord Jesus will be glorified in his saints. The scriptures say at that time the people of God will experience transformation. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus comes not just to bring his glory to the earth. As I wrote that, I struggled not to go back and edit it because his purity and worthiness and the blessing that he'll bring is going to be sufficient in our view. Jesus is here and all is well, but that's not the whole of his plan. 
Jesus, when he comes, will bring transformation to the world. He'll set up his kingdom, but he also comes to transform his people, to change them. 1 John 3, verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world did not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When he appears, we will be like him. The book of uh, 2 Corinthians says that we groan in these earthly bodies. We long to put on a permanent, renewed body, a heavenly dwelling. That what is mortal in us would be swallowed up by life. We desire to be made new. Giving, given glorified bodies that don't wear out or need organ transplants or knee replacements or medicine, ones that don't crave sin and self. We want to be preserved as ourselves. But we want all that's offensive to our Lord and Savior to be removed. We'll be us, but we'll be the best version of us that could ever exist. And we'll worship him and delight in him with a joy that knows no end. He comes, it says, to be marveled at among all who believed. But now notice this. The ground of this transformation in the individual life is at the end of verse 10, because our testimony to you was believed. Hold on to that thought. Coming right back to it. Look at what it says in verses 8 and 9 about those who reject those who reject will be excluded from God's glory. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who've believed. There will be those who rejoice at his coming because they wait to receive him, because they received him once and they have waited for him to come. But what of those who reject him? Those who refuse to acknowledge their rebellion against his goodness and kindness. Those who won't acknowledge that they were born in rebellion. Those who don't admit their need for forgiveness. Those who say to God, I don't need you, or there is no God. The simplicity of the words ought to chill us to the core. There is no twisted vengeance here. There is no over-the-top uh, medieval painting of punishment. Instead, there is just the simple fact they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Those who believe will be included in the fullness of all the blessings of knowing and enjoying God. Those who reject will be excluded from every blessing of life. No middle ground. No intermediate state. No independent party to be associated with. We've been created with infinite souls. 
In this life, we determine how we'll spend eternity. We will either enjoy the blessings of God in eternal life, or we will be separated from them in eternal destruction. Now look at how Paul ends that sentence. Those who reject God suffer, but those who believe, who will enjoy him, do so because our testimony to you was believed. The Bible says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. That means that our mission is clear. The people that we love, those who we consider our close friends, our family, our loved ones, our tribe, our co-workers, our neighbors, they need to hear enough of the word to know who Jesus is, to identify their need, and to put their faith and trust in him. People may lament the decline of the influence of the church in America, and they may be upset about the morality of the people in America, but I say that is in large part because the church has lost its fire in bringing Jesus to the people of America. Come on. Paul was just a normal guy, filled with the Spirit of God, bringing a message that we possess to normal people who need to hear it. We should do the same. Sharpen our communication skills, yes. Learn more, yes. Train for evangelism, yes. But at the end of the day, it comes down to speaking, to sharing, to telling the truth about Jesus. So share. Paul concludes in prayer by pointing out that we wait for the fullness of joy that comes when Jesus returns. But right now, at this moment, the Lord Jesus is glorified in his people hear that? The Lord Jesus is glorified now in his people. Paul's prayer is that the church would be a reflection of true community and holiness. He says this in verse 11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Paul prays that the disciples would embrace the true function of suffering in our lives. It's the means by which God chips away our dependence on the world and on ourselves, and it reveals our citizenship as it grows our dependence. Second, he prays that we would respond to the work of the Spirit in us. Instead of resisting and shutting down the spirit, we would instead act with determination to do good and to live by faith. We would say, I don't know the future, Lord, but I know that you've called me to love my neighbor as myself and to share your saving word with those who need it. In this way, the name of the Lord will be glorified in the church. People will say, those people live like Jesus lived. And those are followers of Jesus. They love him and will be glorified in him. As we live this way, the Holy Spirit will change us. Chipping away what's displeasing to the Lord, shaping us as citizens of heaven. God does this by his grace. Not because we're worthy, but because he's good and kind. So knowing this, how should we respond? By praying for the saints. Praying for the church. 
praying for the pastor of the church, praying for the elders of the church, praying for our ministry leaders and our secretary and the treasurer and the worship leaders and the people who teach Sunday school and praying for the greeters and praying for people who aren't in trouble and praying for people who are in trouble and praying for people who are struggling publicly and praying not knowing who's struggling privately. We pray. Praying for the prayer requests you see each week. You do open that email, right? Actually, only 39% of you who receive it open it. I'll see those numbers go up this week. It's going to be great. (laughs) Pray that God would shape us as we struggle in various ways. Thanks for that little moment of of enjoyment there. That we'd be eager to walk in good works, that we would never forget that God saved us by his grace and that we're dependent on him for everything, that our purpose is to glorify him. Pray that he would receive the glory and the attention. Let me just throw a Thessalonian passage down on you that will first crush you and then I think lift you up. Look at this. First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There, there's required action there and pressure and obedience and burdens there, but look at the power that comes in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So we pray. We pray for the church. We pray that God would have his way in us and that his will would transform us. So in closing, do you need to become a child of God today by repenting and putting your faith and trust in him? Comfort and joy for those who trust. Judgment and destruction for those who reject. Do you need to embrace your identity as a witness of Jesus? There isn't a single person alive, I think, who doesn't think that sharing Jesus in a loving and winsome way is at least slightly scary. So yeah, you're scared. Share anyway. Ask God to empower you and then trust him with the results. Do you need to begin the regular practice of praying for God's people? For your own boldness and witness, ask your father for help and empowerment, and then make an appointment, determine the place and the time, make the space ready, and be there to pray. And ask God to transform you and your world. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. We thank you for the freedom to assemble. We don't have to hide in a basement somewhere with a single light bulb giving us illumination, worried about the cops breaking in and arresting us. We've been given freedom, and we thank you for that. But beyond political freedom, there is the spiritual freedom that you've given us in Christ. If we lay hold of it, we will be transformed by your power. And so we ask that you would shape us. Help us to be dependent on you. Help us to be transformed by you. Help us to see you as loving and caring, not a capricious God who who is indifferent to our suffering, 
but instead one that provides purpose to meaning and pain in the middle of a fallen and difficult world. Help us to live in a way that we will not feel disappointment when you return, but that we will be excited to see you because we waited for you and longed for you and delighted in your coming. Father, we pray that we would remember that that freedom cost the Lord Jesus his life. And though we don't work to earn our salvation, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul says in Ephesians. So help us to live in a way that glorifies you. We thank you. We love you. We pray your blessing as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Usually the